Well, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8, especially the second half of the chapter, we have these scenes where Jesus is asserting his authority in particular areas of life. And just by way of reminder, I want to just kind of draw your attention to some of these arenas. In chapter 8, we had, we had healing scenes where Jesus demonstrates his power over sickness as he heals those who are sick. And so we have this record of bringing all these people to Jesus and how he took his time to heal them. And of course, that healing was a little foretaste, a little foreshadowing of what will be the permanent reality in his kingdom forever. No sickness at all. And then towards the end of chapter 8, we have this moment where Jesus is crossing the lake with the disciples. And of course, there's a big storm that comes and hits the lake. And as the storm hits the lake, the disciples are freaking out. And you remember Jesus, uh, you know, they wake him up and he rebukes the wind and the sea. And he demonstrates there not just his authority over sickness, but his authority over the weather. That Jesus can actually control the wind and the sea because he created it, right? And at the end of that, that scene, you have the disciples just going, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him, right? And that, asking that question as Jesus asserts his authority over uh, nature, particularly the weather. And then here in this last section in chapter 8, we come to a scene where Jesus asserts his authority over evil. We have this interaction between Jesus and these two demon-possessed men. Now, a narrative like this, really, it introduces or reminds us of the reality that we face evil every day. We don't necessarily face demon-possessed people every day. We'll talk about that a little bit more as we go. But we do face evil every day. Another way to talk about evil is to talk about rebellion against God. And we see different expressions of rebellion against God all around us in our culture Of course, we also see rebellion against God even within us, and we'll wrestle with that as we work through this passage. When we read the rest of the Bible, we understand that Satan's primary tactic when it comes to spiritual warfare is to attack us where we believe, what we think about God, and how we respond to the Word of God. In Ephesians 6 and 2 Corinthians 10, we get clear uh, teaching from the Bible that what Satan is trying to do is not possess you with a demon, but Satan is trying to do is impact your faith in the Lord. He wants to derail your faith. He wants to cause you to question the existence of God or the goodness of God and so on and so forth. The fact that evil exists, the fact that we face demonic attacks in one way or another is a sobering reminder of what we're up against on a daily basis. We're not just battling against flesh and blood as if that weren't enough, right? As if that weren't enough. So, If Jesus has authority over evil, what does he do with that authority? And what does that mean for us? This narrative is very important because it communicates us a couple of very significant truths about our Savior. But as we think about those truths, we're going to have to ask, so what? How does that impact my life? The fact is, you will interact with evil. We all do. So what are we going to do about it? How should we respond based on who Jesus is? Let's unpack this narrative and see what's going on, and then we'll learn from God's word how we should respond as we interact with evil. So verse 28, this continues the previous narrative. He's crossed the, the, the lake with the disciples through the storm. In verse 28, we read, When he had come to the other side, to the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him as they came out of the tombs. 
They were so violent that no one could pass that way. This introduces for us this new narrative, and let's just get oriented on the map, shall we? It's been a while. Yeah, so let's do it. Uh, this is the Sea of Galilee that you're looking at here. Uh, this, the northwestern side is where Jesus uh, spent most of his time ministering. So Capernaum is here. That's his ministry headquarters. And so this is uh, the, if you'll you know, just allow me, the Jewish section, primarily the Jewish section of the lake. Over here on the eastern, southeastern side of the lake was the Gentile area of the lake. It was actually a different Roman administrative uh, grouping, and so it actually had a, a much larger Gentile population. So when the text says that they went to the other side of the lake, it, like, it means the other side of the tracks. Are you with me? Like, to the, uh, you know, where the other people are, okay? Why are you going to find uh, pig farmers over here, right? Because it's a Gentile territory, and because they love bacon, okay? So that's why. <laughs> Praise the Lord. There we go. So they're over here. So uh, there's two options for the location for this event. One is this town called Kersi or Gergisa, possibly up here. The other is Gadara, which is down in this region. This whole region, Gadara is down here, but this whole area was called Gadara uh, back at that time. We don't know which is for sure. This is, actually has the better kind of uh, manuscript evidence points to down at the side of the lake. We don't know for sure, and we shouldn't lose sleep over it because it happened on the Gentile side of the lake somewhere along here. I can just show you a picture so you can see the idea of the region. So this is that Gadara section of the, the south end of the uh, Sea of Galilee. Um, you know, you can see these, these hills. If, you, if we could go further up, you could see there are some steep um, banks that run into the water like that. But this just gives you an idea. You can see how a town would be there with some pig farming and other things going on. It's somewhere like this, and, and that's about as far as we can go. All that to say, note again in verse 28, that when the two demon-possessed men came out, they were so violent that no one could pass that way. So here are these two guys. Uh, in Mark and Luke's version, they only focus on one of the men, but Matthew actually clarifies there were actually two men that were demon-possessed. And so here they are. They were resigned to living in the tombs, okay, because they were kicked out of the community. And because they were demon-possessed, they were violent and unpredictable. And Matthew tells us they were so violent that people wouldn't even walk that way. You wouldn't even go past that cemetery because those guys were a threat to anybody coming by. I mean, that's how unpredictable, how violent, how unstable they were because of uh, being demon-possessed. And Mark clarifies a lot about that. Matthew just mentions it as, listen, you just need to know that this was an affliction to these men and it was also an affliction to the community because even if, you know, you know your uh, Google Maps said to go that way, you wouldn't go that way. You have to know, you know local knowledge. No, 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 you don't go that way because of those guys, you know, living in the tombs. So Jesus comes to that side of the lake, and then there he goes. He's coming by these tombs, and the two men, demon-possessed, come out and confront Jesus. Watch verse 29. Suddenly they shouted, What do you have to do with us, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a couple notes here on verse 29. The demons, speaking through the men, right, instigate this confrontation, okay? And the first line, what do you have to do with us? That's a very common uh, Hebrew saying, okay? And it's basically like, you know, what's your problem? Like, what's your problem with me? It's actually often used in, uh, in high, highly uh, contentious military situations or interpersonal conflict. So it's, it's somewhat confrontational language, okay? What have you to do, do with us? Why are, like, what's, why are you messing with us? And note what they say secondly, though. They identify Jesus as the Son of God. What do you have to do with us, Son of God? And Mark, Son of the Most High, they call him. 
So these demons, they know who Jesus is. They know that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity incarnate. They know that he's the Messiah. And when they use that title, Son of God, that's loaded with messianic acknowledgement. They recognize who he is. That's why they've come out to confront him as he was passing by in their region. But then notice they kind of have a complaint. They say, have you come here to torment us before the time? In Jude 6, Jude verse 6, we read about, you know, uh, fallen angels being held in captivity until their time of judgment. That there's this like appointed day and time of judgment for demons. And that's, of course, likely the, the same day of judgment for the world as well. But all that to say, they know that day is coming and they're going, uh, my calendar says we're not there yet. So why are you here? Like the incarnation was a problem for them. Like they're like, you're, you're infringing on our territory. Another interesting fact about uh, demons or fallen angels in the Bible is that they seem to have geographic boundaries, that they kind of have these specific boundaries. And we learned that a little bit in Deuteronomy chapter 32. If you're curious, you can check that out. So the idea is they're going, listen, you're kind of in our territory here, Jesus. And what's the deal? Because it's not time. Have you come to torment us before the time? Now, in this confrontation, we learn something very important, and it's something you need to know when you come face-to-face with evil in your daily life, and it's this fact. Evil's days are numbered. Evil's days are numbered. That there's not an indeterminate amount of time where evil will be allowed to exist. These demons, which are fallen angels, right, working under their chief Satan, they are seeking to thwart the will of God. They are seeking to promote rebellion against God, wreak havoc in the world, discourage people from faith. But notice two important things that that we learn about demons from this passage. First is that demons know Jesus. Demons know that Jesus is, again, the second person of the Trinity incarnate, that he is the Messiah. Now, they don't submit to Jesus, which we'll come back to that later, but they do know who he is and they acknowledge his identity So demons know who Jesus is. And secondly, demons know judgment is coming. They they know that they've already lost. They know that their rebellion is futile. But nonetheless, they have participated in it. And so they they know judgment's coming. So have you come to torment us before the time? We know the time is coming. In all of this, even though they're confrontational here, they're confrontational, but you very very much get the sense that that they're afraid. That that. Jesus has come to town, and they're like, uh, are, are, is this, have you come to deal with us already? Like, is it already that time? Of course, Jesus himself was not afraid, as we will see. You know, I just fear that Hollywood has messed up our understanding of Satan, demons, and how evil works, right? You know, we've seen too many horror movies, and I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with, you know, enjoying a fright or a scare, But I think one thing that's happened with the development of the horror genre is that there have been twisted uh, and false ideas represented about who Satan is, what demons are, and what they're trying to accomplish. I don't know if you had the unfortunate experience of seeing that movie, The Exorcist, that came out in 1973. Um, Unfortunate. Okay, I was negative five years old. It still messed me up. Uh, That's how how bad that movie was. you know, that movie takes some ideas that, you know, here's this demon-possessed girl, and she has these crazy strength and all that. It's really, it's really horrible. You shouldn't watch this movie. It's terrible. It's a very sad and, and uh, depraved story. But at the end of the, basically at the end of the story, it's like there's no hope against these demons. 
like there's no there's nothing to be done like the demon's all powerful and they, they can't beat it you know, like that's the end of the story basically and you go wait hold on a second that's not what we read in the scripture now yes demons are trying to thwart god's will yes they are promoting rebellion against god but the fact is that these demons are scared of jesus they know who he is they know their day of judgment is coming and they're like uh you're early right and so they're they're scared here I would just maybe make two observations based on these truths, okay? Um, one is we certainly shouldn't celebrate evil. And in God's kindness, we're coming into this passage at the outset of the fall, right? And so uh, where people will celebrate Halloween, and I don't think there's anything wrong with giving out candy. Praise the Lord for candy. Let's go, right? And, and having fun and fall festivals, all that is great. There's a line, though, that you cross when you celebrate things that are, that are promoting rebellion against God. I just think you have to be careful about that. You have to be wise and discerning in that. You say, am I going to celebrate demonic, you know, uh, forces? Am I going to celebrate Satan or the devil? Am I going to celebrate what stands in opposition to God and his will? And you make a decision, no. Now, what, what I, we encourage our children to do is you knock on the door, you get the candy, you say, happy Reformation Day, and you're off to the races. <laughs> and, uh, and ask me more about that, and I can direct you to a website with some great costumes for Re- Reformation characters, and we can go that way. Um, no, but, I, but we, shouldn't, we should not celebrate evil. And as much as I can tease about it here, it, it isn't a laughing matter. It's not something we should just, you know, oh, it's just a cartoon character. We need to be careful about that. But, but something that Hollywood has done to us is that, I, frankly, I think Hollywood has stoked our fear of evil. And the fact is, we do not need to fear evil. You don't have to be afraid of Satan or demons. And as we see this passage unfold, we'll see very clearly why that is the case. Jesus, in the midst of this confrontation, refused to leave these men suffering and leave the community at jeopardy by virtue of this demonic presence. Watch what happens. It's so great. So they're like, you're here early. Are you going to mess with us? They acknowledge him as the son of God. And then we get this interesting note, which if you don't know the story, it seems so random in verse 30. When in verse 30, Matthew says, a long way off from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. Okay, thank you, Matthew. <laughs> okay, random observation. Well, that's going to come, come back into play in a minute. But notice verse 31. The demons say, If you drive us out, the demons begged him, send us into the herd of pigs. So here, it's interesting. The demons, they don't just ask Jesus, they beg Jesus, right? They are in absolute submission to the Son of God. You know, sometimes I think we, we read these stories and we, we feel like, oh, it's like this tussle. And it's like, oh, 51-49, and Jesus is going to win, but just barely. No, that's not how it is. These demons are in submission to Jesus, so much so that they say, if indeed you're going to drive us out of this man, which they anticipate he's going to do, if you're going to drive us out of these men, then send us into the pigs. And we don't know all the reasons why. We don't have all the background. Other, it, may be, it may be related to that geographic realm of uh, you know, responsibility that they have. And they're like, just send us into the pigs or whatever. But the point is, they ask Jesus. They beg Jesus to do that. They're, they're begging Jesus to, to recognize that the time of judgment is not yet here. If you read Mark and Luke's version, they both seem to emphasize the fact that the demons are asking not to receive their permanent final punishment yet. So maybe they recognize this is a punishment, but it's not the punishment, right? And so there's an acknowledgement that, that that is coming and that Jesus is the one who has authority to punish them. But they're asking and begging Jesus not to do that just at that moment. So they beg him to, to send us into the herd of pigs. 
Notice in verse 32, this is so important. Watch verse 32, what happens. Go, he told them. So when they had come out, they entered the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the water. It's sad about the pigs. Huge financial loss for the town, absolutely. But note what's going on here. This is confirmation that Jesus healed these men of this affliction. This is confirmation that Jesus has authority over evil. And notice that when they asked Jesus, you know, if you're going to send us out, send us into the herd, Jesus, in casting these demons out of these men, it took exactly one word. There was no complicated formula he had to say. He didn't have to say the names of the demons, even though we read in Mark and Luke that their name is Legion, you know, this whole thing. He doesn't have to say the name of the demon. He doesn't have to do some kind of special ritual or whatever. Jesus, because he has absolute authority over sickness, yes, over weather, absolutely, but even over evil itself, Jesus just has to say one word, go. Go. And they leave. And they go in the pigs. And the pigs lose their minds and rush into the water and and the pigs perish. We don't know what happens to the demons at that point. And that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is to to communicate very clearly, Jesus has authority over evil. But why? Well, you see, what this announces, right? What this says to the world, even to the Gentile world on the other side of the lake, it says that his kingdom, that God's kingdom has come. Jesus defeating demons proves His kingdom has come. Jesus defeating demons proves his kingdom has come. These demons are on the run. They're begging for their lives, so to speak. And at this moment, when Jesus tells them to go, he tells them to go to alleviate the suffering of these men. He tells them to go for the the betterment of that community so that way they wouldn't have to avoid going that way and there wouldn't be a risk of danger to anyone else. And yes, it costs the pigs their lives, but so be it. Jesus has acted for the benefit of these people. And when he does that, he's saying, let me just tell you, better days are coming. Because Jesus has arrived, he says, my kingdom is here. And because Jesus has arrived, demons were on the run. Right? They, they weren't gearing up for battle. They weren't like, oh, we're going to make one last stand. They were begging him to delay their judgment until the appointed time. It's not a 51-49 battle. It wasn't a close one. And again, it didn't take some kind of trickery or some kind of special code language. Jesus has that authority and he says, go. Why? Out of love for these men. Out of care for the community. Because Jesus came to alleviate suffering. That's why he did it. Now, the fact that the arrival of Jesus in the first incarnation puts these demons on the run... I think that may help us understand a little bit about why demonic strategy has changed so much in 2,000 years. I think the fact is the growth and advancement of God's kingdom has muscled out a lot of this demonic activity. C.S. Lewis, uh, in his famous work, The Screwtape Letters, which I heartily recommend to you, he, he actually um, suggests that demons change their tactic for the modern audience and they're doing less possession now and more just you know indirect influence through media and other sources like that because they're just trying to use whatever's most effective and by the way that strategy of advancing rebellion against god through media has been very effective in our culture 
So, you know, and it, it is, of course, likely impossible that demons still could possess people in other uh, cultures and other circumstances. They don't seem to be doing that as much in our culture today. And again, I think that may be directly related to the advancement of his kingdom work. All that to say, the fact that demons are on the run proves Jesus's kingdom authority. It proves that his kingdom has come. And this is the dawning of his kingdom that we're reading about in Matthew, the arrival of Jesus. But so what? Well, this, this communicates to us two things about Jesus, his power and his beauty. His power and his beauty. His power in that Jesus isn't scared of legion or whatever, right? Like this, this demonic horde or whatever it is. Jesus is like, no, I'm not phased by you. Go, you're out. But then secondly, it shows us the beauty of Jesus, the goodness of Jesus. Why would Jesus come to this side of the lake and mess with these guys? What, he, he certainly knew what was going to be happening going through that, that graveyard. Why bother? Well, the fact is Jesus cared about these men and he cared about their community. And he came to alleviate suffering. And so that's exactly what he did. That shows the beauty and goodness of Jesus. And here, this is another installment in Jesus' victory against the forces of evil and rebellion against God. If we go back earlier in Matthew, we had the first major installment of this in the wilderness. When Jesus, after his baptism, was led into the wilderness by the Spirit, and there Satan tempts him, Jesus was victorious over that temptation. And that was just a reminder that, listen, Satan is a loser, and he's a loser because Jesus has power and authority over him. And so he can't win. And yet along the way, we have these, these stories about Jesus alleviating suffering by casting out demons. And we'll see more of that as we go through Matthew. Why? Because Jesus is victorious over evil, over Satan, and over sin. So all of this anticipates where Matthew is heading, ultimately, the climax, which is what? Which is Jesus going to the cross, in which I truly believe Satan thought he had won. He was victorious. But in fact, he had lost. And in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, he proved not only his ultimate power over evil, sin, suffering, and death, but he proved his goodness, that he died and rose to alleviate suffering. And brothers and sisters, he did that for us. He did it for you and for me. So this installment, as Jesus once again proves his superiority to demons and to Satan, to evil, right? It just moves us a little closer to that greater victory at the cross. And if you're, you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, you need to know that the offer of salvation that is given to us in Christ, the gospel, the good news, is yes, if you repent of your sins and trust Christ, you'll be forgiven of your sins, absolutely. But that's not all. When you're forgiven of your sins, you're welcomed into the family of God and you look forward to a permanent existence with God on earth free of suffering, free of evil, right? No evil, no demons afflicting anyone. Satan will be bound, his demonic horde with him, and they will suffer judgment forever. You see, Jesus' victory at at the cross is the basis of that final eradication of evil that we look forward to. And there is an appointed time, by the way, we read about it in Revelation 20. That's the day when Satan is finally, ultimately taken care of by the Lord. There he begins his eternal punishment. That day is coming. And so because that day is coming, we can have confidence even today as we deal with living in a world tainted and marked by evil. Again, Jesus defeating demons proves his kingdom has come. If you've never trusted in Christ, 
You should trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, but you should also trust in Christ because he is more powerful than evil and he's proven his goodness in his ministry. He loves you. He loves us. The fact is, as we deal with the day-in, day-out battle, though, for all of us, right, we have to remember that, yes, Jesus is powerful over evil, and he's, he's good, he's beautiful, right? He, he cares for us, and so he's trustworthy in the meantime. And, you know, at this point, you might be wondering, well, hold on a second. If Jesus is really powerful and he has authority over evil, and that's the main idea of this narrative, Jesus has authority over evil, and we're still, you know, kind of dealing with evil, what's the deal with that? Because if I had authority over evil, I would just wipe it out right now, wouldn't I? So the question is, well, what is Jesus doing by allowing evil to continue until the appointed time? Well, at this point, we just have to acknowledge that his ways are higher than our ways. And while I might simplistically think, oh, we should just alleviate all evil right now and take it out of the world, right? God has a plan, and his plan ultimately accomplishes his glory, and it's for our good. Which means that in the meantime, we have to trust him when we don't understand. And so, yes, Jesus has power over evil. And yes, he alleviates suffering. That is the the goal of his ministry in so many ways. But the fact is we have to trust him in the meantime. We read verses like Romans 8, verse 28, well-known and well-quoted for good reason. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good. That means all things including evil, including the less than, than ideal. And here Jesus just kind of gives us a, a sneak preview. Don't worry, evil won't have its day forever. But in the meantime, I am trustworthy. Now, Jesus alleviates these men's suffering. He casts out the demon. One word, boom, they go. They're in the pigs. The pigs are dead. It's done, right? So he's alleviated the suffering of these two men. He's also removed the plague uh, on the community, right? And he's done this. I think as a blessing to the community. So the guys who were uh, herding the pigs, they saw the whole thing go down, and so they respond. And the response of the town is not what you would think it would be. Watch verse 33. So Matthew tells us, Then the men who tended them, that's who tended the pigs, they fled. And they went into the city, and they reported everything, especially what had happened to those who were demon-possessed. Now pause. There was a doctor in that town okay, who had tried to treat those guys unsuccessfully, right? Maybe. I don't know that. There were certainly people that, it was the family of these guys or friends of these guys that that knew them, right? And had knew them before they were afflicted with these demons and then had seen them kind of go down and, and, and now they were cast out of the society and all that. So all these people are in the town. Not a huge town, small village, right? But nonetheless, there they are, right? And so these, these pig herders, they come running into town and they relate everything that happened, but note that they focus especially on what had happened to the two demon-possessed men. That, what? That namely, they're not now demon-possessed. That Jesus has has freed them of this affliction. So they report this whole thing. And of course, and they talk about the pigs and the whole thing, right? They tell the whole story, right? Now, we could just envision the kind of thing that we would expect as a response to this miracle that Jesus has done. Joy from the family. Celebration that now this road is open that was, you know, kind of a sketchy road that you wouldn't want to go in, right? 
Maybe, maybe there was, you know, an opportunity now to visit the graves of loved ones from the past because now you didn't have to be afraid of going to that cemetery. Whatever, right? You know, celebration. Of course, there's the messianic implications. Who is this one who has power over evil? Maybe we should go and find out, right? All this worship, right? Awe, gratitude, submission. All these would be appropriate responses and more. But notice what happens in verse 34. At that The whole town, the whole town went out to meet Jesus. When they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. This is one of the saddest verses in the Bible. Here, Jesus has alleviated the suffering of these men. He's he's done a service to this small village. And the whole town, Matthew says, came out. And in unity, they begged him, Not to teach them, not to heal them, not to lead them and guide them. They begged him to leave. D.A. Carson said they preferred swine to the Savior. And we don't know if it was just about the pigs. Had to have been partially about the pigs. Pigs were their livelihood, right? They took a huge financial hit when those pigs ran off that cliff into into the lake. And maybe they cared more about money than they did about Jesus. Maybe they cared more about their career and the status of their town than they cared about, well, the second person of the Trinity standing right in front of them, providing an incredible service to these men and to their community. They begged Jesus to go. Because while they certainly probably didn't have any opposition to him casting out demons in general, They just didn't want him in their town. They didn't want him affecting their homes, their workplaces, their schools, right? They didn't want him messing with their livelihood. They just wanted him to go. You'd expect a different response. But what this narrative teaches us at the end here, it's an important sub-point. It's that rejecting Jesus can look very respectable. Rejecting Jesus can look respectable. You can say it another way. Not all evil wears black. I mean, that's the fact. That there's evil and there's evil. And so here we can get worked up because of Hollywood based on, oh, the darkness of this and the demon doing that and all of this. But in reality, what's just as rebellious against the will of God is someone dressed up who walks into that, that moment with Jesus and says, as the spokesman of the town perhaps, says, we've talked about it and we'd prefer for you to leave because we would rather live our lives without you meddling. We would rather live our lives without you interfering than have you messing with our stuff. So could you just go? It's respectable, right? They begged, they asked, but it's still rebellion. And this leads us, I think, to maybe one of the primary ways we need to think about how this passage affects us. Because we all know the right response to Jesus. We've seen it in the Gospel of Matthew a little bit here and there. Worship, right? Awe. Again, gratitude, thanksgiving, and crucially, submission. Submission to Jesus is the right response. And the disciples are figuring this out. They're seeing Jesus assert his authority over sickness, over the weather, and now over evil. And they're asking, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? The the demons know he's the son of God, right? 
and yet the demons refuse to submit. Well, that's expected. Because there they are. They're pure evil, right? But then here are these townsfolk, and they refuse to submit. Sure, they beg Jesus, but they beg him to leave, not to stay. And there's an important caution here. No doubt Matthew includes this in his gospel because he knows that people will hear about the power and the beauty of Jesus. They will hear about the good things that Jesus has done for us and the climax of his goodness that we see in the cross with his death and his resurrection on our behalf. And they will think, wow, that's really interesting and that's wonderful and all that. I just don't want Jesus dealing with my finances. I just, it's all good. You can have your thing. I just don't want Jesus in my kitchen dealing with my marriage. I don't want Jesus trying to assert lordship over my career, over my parenting. I don't don't want Jesus messing with my stuff and my people. And that, brothers and sisters, is as dark and as black as those demons possessing those men. It's tragic. Maybe you're here this morning. And maybe you would claim to be a follower of Jesus in general. But the fact is you don't want Jesus messing with your stuff. If that's where you are, I just want to caution you that that's not belief. That's not belief. In James chapter 2, verse 19, James says something very interesting. He's talking about the difference between a claim to faith and the real thing. And he says, oh, you have a good doctrinal statement? You, you believe that God is one? He says, good. Um, well, even demons believe that. Even demons would say that, oh, yes, God is you know, unified in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They would, have, they would have a clear and a good doctrinal statement. They could say more than you and I could say about the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity. Their doctrine is really clear on that. Their doctrine of the end times is really clear on the judgment that's coming. They know that day is appointed. But James says, even demons believe, and they shudder. They don't worship, they don't submit, right? In love, they, they just, they're just afraid. They're just afraid of Jesus' lordship. They, they don't worship him as a response. And I think that's exactly the same sentiment that's expressed here. Here these people had, had firsthand experience of the goodness of Jesus and his power. And they said, we really don't want you messing with our lives. Is that you this morning? Are you generically religious or Christian? But when push comes to shove, you don't want Jesus affecting your life? meaning you don't want to make changes that you know you need to make. We could apply this in a million ways, but it applies most where it hurts most. And frankly, the the checkbook may be the place to start here with the pigs, right? Because there's a financial element here. If I love Jesus, I will behave in certain ways with my finances. And many of us are, frankly, we're hesitant to give Jesus that level of authority as if he doesn't already have it, right? But we're going to try to protect our money from Jesus, Or again, maybe it is your marriage or your parenting. You're having interpersonal conflict in your family and you're refusing to submit and go to the Lord. And even when God speaks so clearly about how we should function in marriage, husbands, how we should love and cherish our wives and and live with sacrificial service to them, right? And how we should lead our children, right? And all this and wives to submit to husbands and all of this. All these dynamics are explained in scripture. And yet we say, you know what? Well, I know it says that, but I don't really want Jesus messing with my marriage, or my parenting. It, it could be your, your, your attitude towards work, your attitude at school, whatever it is. You don't want people knowing you're a Christian too much. You don't want to be too different than everybody else. But all the while, there's Jesus who says to demons, go, and they go. Demonstrating, yes, his power, but also his goodness. And brothers and sisters, Jesus will tell us at the end of Matthew, go. 
make disciples. It's a whole different dynamic, isn't it? Because rather than say that to people who are in stubborn rebellion against him, Jesus is saying that to those who have, who have knelt in worship and love to him. Acknowledging who he is, not in fear, but in worship. I wonder, is it you? Is that you this morning? Are you, are you the person whose life demonstrates genuine submission to Jesus in every area? Or are you rejecting Jesus in a respectable way? Are you someone who's said no to Jesus? Kindly, but you've said no. You know, the opposite to the right response to Jesus isn't necessarily wild rebellion. Perhaps the opposite to worshipful submission to Jesus is just indifference. It's just the, meh, yeah, it's for somebody else. Maybe when I get older, you know, a dear saint was reminding me this morning that you don't know when your last day will be. And you could get, you know, stung by a hornet or whatever. Like, it, it could come, you know, in a, in a time that you don't know what's coming. And so you think, oh, yeah, I'll get serious about Jesus later. Well, why don't you get serious about Jesus today? Because of his power, yes. Because of his beauty, Jesus defeating demons proves his kingdom has come. The question is, do we care? You heard about this old meeting they had uh, with the demons? This is thousands of years ago. Did you heard about this? They had this meeting, and they were talking about different... And I know you've heard it before, but I'm just going to tell you, just to remind you, this is, this is a true story. It definitely happened, probably, most likely. Uh, so the demons are at this meeting, right? And they're strategizing about how they can be more effective in their work of derailing people from coming to faith and growing in their faith. And so there's all these different suggestions made. And, you know, one kind of, you know, semi-older, you know, probably in his mid-40s kind of a demon, you know, like just getting to that place of gray hairish respect in the community, right, in the demon community. You know, he's, he was an ugly one, i got to be honest, right? So, but he says, he says, here's the deal. He says, this is what we're going to tell people. We're going to tell people there's no heaven, right? That's, that's the pitch. Tell people there's no heaven. There's nothing to look forward to. There's nothing really better. This is as good as it's going to get. And he says, that'll be our strategy to to derail the work of the gospel, the advancement of people's faith. And this, oh, yeah, the demons are oh, they all grumble. Oh, that's a good plan. You know, like, oh, like that's a good plan. But there's another guy who, let's be honest, had a few more gray hairs. He'd been around the block a few more times. He was even uglier. You know who I'm talking about, right? And so this guy's there, and he says, actually, he says, let's not tell him there's no hell. Excuse me, there's no heaven. Let's tell him there's no hell. There's no suffering. There's no judgment. There's nothing like that. And then all the demons are, oh, they all grumble and approve. Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a good plan. Yeah, because what do you think? You tell people there's no hell. There's no reason to trust in a Savior, right? So they're, they're kind of talking about this is a good strategy. Maybe we can do that. And then there was one demon. Oh, man, he was the ugliest of the bunch. You can picture him. There he was. And everybody was kind of waiting for his response. He hadn't really done much. And he kind of <clears throat> clears that demon-y throat, right? And he says, <clears throat> he says, Let's tell them there's no hurry. And every, I mean, there's silence in the room, right? Because they all recognize what an effective strategy that would be. Sure, tell them there's no heaven, there's nothing better. Oh, this is it. This is what you got to live for. Enjoy it now. Uh, tell them there's no hell, there's no judgment, there's no reason to turn to Christ. Okay. But tell them there's no, there's no hurry. You don't have to deny heaven or hell. You just tell them, eh, it's not that big of a deal. You've got time. You can always deal with it later. Respectable. Keep Jesus at a distance, right? He, yeah, sure, he's good. Just do your thing somewhere else. And maybe when I'm older, I'll get to that. 
I know it's a familiar story, but it proves a very important point. That if we delay submission to Jesus, we may never do it. And that's the fact. And yes, the main idea here is that Jesus defeating demons proves his kingdom has come. But the question you and I have to ask is, do we care? Do we care that his kingdom has come? Do we care that he's proven his power and his goodness? Do we care that he died for our sins and rose from the dead? Do we care enough to worship? Do we care enough to be in awe of him? Do we care enough to be be thankful? Do we care enough to submit to his lordship? We all have room to grow here. So would you please pray with me and we'll ask God to help us respond to Jesus rightly. Lord, we thank you for your word, especially this part of your word. It's an important moment, Lord, where again you communicate to us clearly your authority over evil. Lord, we confess that many days we're confused. We don't understand why you allow certain things. But Lord, we pray that you would protect us from skepticism, from arrogance and thinking that we know better than you how to run this universe. So help us to trust you. And Lord, help us to recognize that evil's days are numbered. That this suffering that we see around us as a result of rebellion against you will not continue indefinitely. Lord, encourage us with that that truth, even as we suffer. And sometimes we are the victims of, of evil, Lord. We pray that you would help us. Lord, we pray that we would see what this passage so clearly shows us. Your power and authority over evil and your goodness, Lord. That you did come to alleviate suffering. Lord, we thank you that this installment, this victory over evil was just one in many. And we thank you for your death and resurrection, which proves, once again, your power over evil and your goodness. And Lord, we thank you for how that is the basis for the future permanent eradication of evil from this world. And we look forward to that day with with faith. And Lord, we ask that you would come quickly. But Lord, in the meantime, we are cautioned by this response of the town. And so I ask that you would help us to be people who, yes, worship you, but Also, Lord, submit to you. Protect us from respectful rejection of you, Lord, where we keep you at a distance. Lord, I pray for those who this morning, they know right away, they can think of areas in their life that they are not in submission to you. And I pray that you would bless them, convict them of their sin, Lord, and bring them to you. Remind them of your grace and your goodness. And Lord, we ask that you would keep our focus on what you are doing right now by your grace and where we are all headed. And we thank you that you will judge the wicked, Lord. We thank you that there will be a day of reckoning for all evil. And we thank you that you have done this work of rescuing us by faith in you, protecting us from that judgment and allowing us the joy of experiencing eternal life with you without evil. Lord, help us to trust you as we go. We pray these things in your name. Amen.